Welcome to Well Played Podcast, the show on all things playful and joyous in education. I'm your host, Michael Matera, a sixth grade teacher, author, motivational speaker, and also a single dad. Loving that. My daughter's awesome. And uh, today I have with me an old friend, uh, John Meham. Glad to have you on, John. Uh, if you want to give a brief sort of introduction to yourself, that would be great. Oh, thanks, yeah, man. Um, first, thanks for having me on. It's cool to hang out this morning on West Coast time while I'm on an airport here. I apologize for any flying planes in the background. Um, so I'm John. I work as an instructional coach and an English teacher out of Arlington, Virginia, a Catholic school, which is cool. We're talking today about uh, coming at learning from a bunch of different angles and Catholic school, public school. I joke that great teaching is content agnostic. It really is um, for everybody. Uh, and as an instructional coach, I work with people in all different departments, about 100 different teachers. Uh, math, science, English, history, world languages, religion, PE, so I do all that stuff. Uh, I wrote a book, uh, which, which your, yours was a, a major inspiration for, and I want to thank you again, um, both on the podcast and, and personally, um, because I talk about a lot of things that are, that are playful and joyous, and I've, I've been very blessed to be able to talk about it here in Oregon today and a lot of different places all over the U.S. Uh, about how to get kids excited to learn. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's, that's the 30-second version of it. Nice. Uh, good to have you on. Uh, always. And some of you that have been well-played podcast fans all along, like get to hear John from both sides. John has been on like pre-book. John, I like, I think there's an episode when you just got started. Then there's yeah. like, another episode, another episode. And so now it's kind of fun, like on the, on the other side of the fence as he has published his book, uh, so Adrenaline Rush, for anybody that's looking for it. I don't know if you actually dropped the name in there. So oh, I did I'm, I'm, really, I'm really bad at the capitalism part of it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if anybody Rush. wants, uh, I endorse the book. It is fantastic. It's full of all sorts of great takeaways and things you can use in your classroom right away. Today, though, like John and I wanted to set aside some time to talk about how play is for everyone. That's the title of today's episode. And what we're trying to stress here is uh, we often, both of us present and we hear from people like, I'm not a gamer or I don't understand that game culture or I didn't play games as a kid or I don't know anything about video games, what, whatever the case may be. And we really wanted to break down that truly play is for everyone. It doesn't matter if you fall in or out of any of the groups I just mentioned or any other group that you can come up with. That truly this 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 idea of play can be for you to introduce to your class and like create a lesson or a unit with play as sort of the centerpiece, as well as it's good for your type of student. So we really can take this podcast from both angles, student and teacher perspective. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm so in, uh, and I'm very blessed, like I said, to be able to to do this work in a lot of different places. I was in Baltimore on Friday at uh, the, it's called the, the GBL, the Game-Based Learning Summit. Um, it was sponsored by uh, Legends of Learning, which is uh, a, an education software uh, company, which is game-based uh, math science education for, I guess, uh, third graders through eighth graders. And so there's, there's a very clear demo there. It's like very STEM, it's very young. Um, and I, I was nervous about the presentation there. And then afterwards I, I got on a flight, actually got on the wrong flight. And ended up, uh, after a much delay, here in Oregon for a presentation at a, a conference, uh, which is uh, called the Conference or the Council for Exceptional Children, which is students who present with what we would uh, call, when I was back in school, uh, learning disabilities. But we talked about uh, reframing that language as uh, learning differences. 
So students um, who receive uh, intellectual or cognitive delays uh, or one-on-one -on -one mentoring support or students who might be on the spectrum or students with uh, TBIs, students with social emotional needs, students in poverty, uh, LGBT students. Um, there's a lot of exceptions to the rule when we realize that every child is exceptional and every student learns in a different way on a different day. Um, so to make our classrooms more joyous is to recognize that we are teaching children and that is not a bad thing. Yeah, and I think that's a great place to start, right? Um, I think teachers are notorious for getting wrapped up in the sort of professionalism of teaching, right? So, you know, talking about committees and standards and, you know, hitting these targets and all these things. And that, that is all good. I don't want to, like, take that away from them. But setting aside for a moment, like, that... I think clears up our vision to see that we are teaching kids, we're teaching people, like, and it gives us space to bring in the relational. And I think teachers are at their best and their peak when they are able to have a good balance, right? We talk about work-life balance, and I think if we were to sort of mine that into the work life, just looking at the work life sort of balance, I think balancing that adult professionalism with the balance of the relational. And I think when we, when we get out of whack on that balance, if you're all relational, then you're not, then you're not filling it with substance at all. But if you're all sort of professionalism and we have to do this, we have to hit these targets in my district, this and my committee, that like, then all of a sudden these kids just become students. They just become numbers. They just become data points, even for you in front of them. Like, and, and, then I think you're out of whack, and it's that it is that balance. I, I I wholeheartedly agree. I think the challenge as an educator is because you call yourself an educator, you want to take it seriously, and that makes perfect sense. Um, Karl Marx has what he calls the worker identity theory, which he says the thing that you do for a living, you see yourself as. And so, if someone says I'm a teacher, enough times they've come to believe, well, this is what a teacher would do, or a teacher should do. I, I'll see this like a teacher would see it. Um, and then you, over time, kind of become not, not, not like a caricature of yourself, but an exaggerated version of your mm -hmm. teacher voice. And you'll you're, you're talk with your, your friends, your loved ones, your family, like, don't put the teacher voice on with me. Like, but you have it. You go back into you know, presenter mode or author mode um, because we see ourselves in that way. And that's, that's natural. It helps us do our jobs. But at the same time, all teaching is relational. And I say it, I mean, as an instructional coach with teachers, the best classroom management program you can have is good relationship with your kids. If you have good relationships with your kids, the conversations are way more important than any consequence you could ever throw at anybody, ever, ever. Um, and I think that that's so hard because playful learning does at times, and like there's those, you know, I'm not going to teach a shame, but there are people who are in the traditional mindset who believe that um, to be anything less than teacherly is somehow beneath them or not becoming of the profession. And I'm like, I don't teach English, I teach people. And if People learn in a different way. I'm gonna. Do I'm, that. Gonna, I'm you know, haters be damned, but I'm I'm gonna put myself out there a little bit and just say like, let's go, do it. Let's go. Well, I'm saying like I'm, we, I'm in. Whatever we're about to say, I'm so in for it. <laughs> like, we have to be okay with like embracing the relationship, even at the expense of a little professionalism, because in on the flip side, would you want to work in an organization that just tries to eke out maximum efficiency, right? Like. 
and and we know i mean you brought up karl marx if you read das kapital like the maximum efficiency like there is no such thing like if you do that it's not gonna work like people do not flourish in that setting we are not widgets we are not computers like you you can't do that but like there are teachers that just talk about only data points and Lexile scores and this, and we need to do this to up the reading percentage by this. And it's like, that's all good. I don't want to like throw that out. But if that's all you sort of care about, and if that's all that's filling your brain space, that does change the relationship between you and your students and not in a good way. If you ask me, I 100% agree with you. And now we're, now we're going to get into like, not just education philosophy and theory, but like philosophy, and I'm so in, so we can talk about this for hours. We'll have a separate podcast. Um, it'll be called, not well played, but well thought. Um, yeah, we'll talk about well thought, that. I like it. All right, done. But I was talking about, uh, I do a lot of research, and I was, uh, I'm working on another project, and um, Paulo Freire comes coming up, um, uh, liberation theology or liberation philosophy, uh, working out of, um, he was in Brazil, and he has this idea of, he wrote a book called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And it's about working with children of people who are um, unable to read or they themselves were unable to read. And they're like migrant workers and they're, and they're, and they're, they're um, you know, dealing in poverty. And he says, um, I'm pulling it up here, he says, those individuals, uh, those individuals who seek to liberate people, quote unquote, by merely imposing decisions or systems. Uh, Ferry argues that such leaders do not organize the people. They manipulate them. They do not liberate, nor are they liberated. They oppress a truly radical leader, he says, fully surrenders to those relationships so that there's a circle of certainty where the person is no longer a prisoner, but they're a partner. And it's like, if you want to lead people, you have to stand there beside them and say, let's do this together, not sit from the top and tell them how to do their job. Um, and I was like, whoa, this is so cool. I mean, and it's, it's, it's the exact way that I have to approach teaching. Um, and I think when we, when, we, when we put that view from the student's perspective, teachers, like I get it, like we're adults, we see, we do see the value of things that sometimes kids can't see the value of, right? Sure. Yeah. And I get that, but like you can't just say to them, it's important, right? Like they don't have, no matter what you do, they don't have your view. They don't, they haven't been to the mountaintop, they haven't seen over the hill, they haven't gone to college yet and see like, oh, I didn't realize how much math I'm going to use as a business major. Like, hmm, like I'm glad that I continued to do math in sixth and seventh and eighth grade, but like they don't have that. So whatever you can do to build the relational side of things, it will open them up to trusting your vision. But if you just shout your vision, right, that doesn't, (sighs) that doesn't work. (laughs) I, and I think that's why games are good because what games, um, do is they, pre- they presuppose a vulnerability. There's this consent that comes with all games. Use the word play, like I want to play, or I no longer want to play, like, you know, I'm done playing. Immediately you're choosing to do the thing that is not hard, it's the fun. And then you're like, okay, back to work. You'll use that phrase, back to work. Like, what we'll play, back to work. I think because we've done that so much, we've, we've created a, a, a false dichotomy that says, oh, but the play is the goofy stuff, and then the work is the hard stuff. But what we, we forget is that when you agree to laugh with someone, when you agree to you know, humble yourself with somebody, like even proximity control in classroom management, if you want to de-escalate a situation, don't talk while you're standing up when a child is sitting down. Get yourself lower to that child's eye level, like squat, and be like, hey, Bobby, what's going on today? Lower your voice in a different tone. It changes the nature of the relation because you're, 
coming to a place where you're sitting in that same magic circle together and you're saying, we're going to suspend the rules of the real world for a second and we're going to do it this way because this is going to be us as momentary partners or equals or rivals, but in a fun and friendly way rather than this power differential where you're constantly reminding them, I'm the boss, I've been at the mountaintop, and I'm going to sit here and throw rocks down at you until you can get on my level. Um, and I think that's, uh, again, that's what great teaching is supposed to do. So, I mean, turning it a little bit here, like when we're trying to tell everyone you you can and, and, and should embrace a bit of a playful nature and a playful attitude and playful design in your class, what are some of the hurdles that you and I have seen that people toss out, you know? Because they're not here on this podcast, but they're also they're also not listening. Which is that's the first hurdle. Which is it's like if I go to a, a PD all you can eat day at any buffet, and I pick my favorite things. Like I don't know, I like the Chinese food, so I go over there. Or I like the pizza, so I go over there. If you're not a Chinese food guy, you skip all the Chinese food. You don't see the good stuff, so you just sort of dismiss it as all ah, it's all Chinese food. It's not my thing. Like they don't recognize the nuance and the wrinkle and the time that goes into a proper game design and playful learning. Um, and so they throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? They're like. You know, they'll say phrases like, um, we don't play games in this class, or like, I don't play around. This is what happens when you just play games. I'm like, man, the games that I'm working on with my kids are so much harder than any lesson plan that I worked on before I was using playful uh, design. Like, it takes time to pick a theme. It takes time to pick a costume if you're going to do a costume thing or a room transformation. It takes a lot to show your students, hey, I really care about this lesson. So I went to Target or Walmart or whatever it is and picked up these few extra manipulatives. Like, I think people are so willing to dismiss it because the the cotton candy effect of seeing bad games done quickly is enough to make them say, all of that stuff is no good for me. And even podcasts like this, which are a chance to get in and see, like, we're name-dropping philosophy, man. Like, we could spend a lot of time on some really deep learning about Piaget and Montessori. They're not there for that because they're not willing to take that first step. And that's, I think that's one of the biggest obstacles I've, I've encountered anyway, is, is trying to, like, be a be a messenger for for the for the cause i definitely have uh, experienced that uh the other big one that i get <laughs> is actually when somebody ends up in my session by accident <laughs> like and then they come up to me afterwards and says you know i wasn't even gonna go to this but like i went to the wrong room or whatever but like shoot they usually say something to the effect of like i wasn't gonna go because i don't want to do video games but after like watching your presentation they now see like oh gamification doesn't mean video games in the classroom absolutely um, but so a hurdle i have definitely experienced is kind of your analogy about the food court and just passing over chinese food somewhere in their brain they just connected gamification with video games esports video games yeah yep and then they're just like that's that's not my thing just like Chinese might not be my thing and you're just going to skip by it on the food court and then you, you're like, oh my gosh, but there's like all these things and there's like a million different dishes and like d even different restaurants within that genre that Correct. would do it differently. And different regions and, of food who would do that. Well, I think I'm going to put you on blast and you didn't know. We, don't, we should probably talk about this before we go live on a podcast. But when I saw you speak, it was at the ASCD Empower Conference. I, I, I remember it was, was it Boston? I think it was in Boston. Maybe Boston, yeah. years ago. Um, and you, your session was not called gamification. It was called something else. It was called immersive and learning. There it is. But you then, you did that giggle thing where you laughed and you said, hey, everybody, we're here to talk about immersive learning. Uh, by another name, we might know it as gamification. Ha <laughs> ha, just kidding. Uh, that's actually what we're talking about for an hour. And if you don't care about games, we kind of tricked you into the room. I love that. I love it. Because 
I mean, what we're talking about is relation. We're talking about is creating environments where people are looking forward to being there. Classroom management, you know, like if you put the capital, like, I, and I've often done that artificial distinction of like capital G gamification and like lowercase g gamification, which is really just game inspired elements of a lesson plan. A turn and talk is a mini game, a mini game. There's a rule. Turn to this neighbor who's next to you and say these things, then they'll talk mm -hmm. back to you. That's, that's a game uh, by a different name. Like, we lesson plan, we game plan, there's a flow, there's a, there's a, there's a pedagogy to it. And I think when I start to de-emphasize the capital G game elements, that's where I'm able to win a few new ears because they're like, oh, it's not about video games. No, it's not. Esports is a totally different thing. By the way, you should be doing esports. That's a separate conversation. Period, full stop, you should be doing esports in your school. Um, but that's not this conversation. This conversation is, do you want your kids to like coming to class? Well, do you like your kids? Do you like what they like? Do you know what they like? Maybe you can figure that stuff out. <laughs> um, I, was, I was reading a book um, by Greg Toppo. It's called The Game Believes in You, How Video Games Are Making Our Kids Smarter. Um, and he was a national K-12 education reporter for USA Today. Uh, I think he was an editor, editor for Inside Higher Ed. Um, and in his book, he talks about video games and just how game-based learning really is, is transformative. In it, he cites a study from uh, researcher James Paul Gee. And he talks about Pokemon. And I have it here because I just thought about it. He says, you know, while educators were debating whether children learn to read best through drill and practice phonics or whole language instruction, Nintendo was quite informally teaching an entire generation of children how to read. Pokemon also taught children how to analyze and classify more than 700 types of creatures through trading cards that were dense, specialized, technical, and cross-referenced. He offered the observation that he knew of no Pokemon gap among poor and minority children. And that's huge. Like, that's what good teaching will do. It's not about being rich or poor or black or white or old or young or straight or gay. or I mean, like, it's about... There's something about this is playful and fun, and we're gonna actually trick you into doing a lot of work because it's dress up as a game. I think that, that's that's like it's, it's both an obstacle and an opportunity uh, for educators to see past their own blinders, their biases. I think. Um, I think too, to like admitting like this idea, like when you going back a little bit on your comment when you talked about like just the little G and turning to your neighbor and talking is a is a bit of a mini game in and of itself. We, again, getting caught up in that sort of professionalism and I know best kind of thing. Uh, I was reminded that this week, this past week, I challenged myself to do more playful learning. Like, right, like even even I can slip back into the like, ah, I got a lecture, I got to get through this, we're a little behind, whatever. And to streamline it, it is quicker if I just sort of pump this out, right? And uh, this past week... I did a activity which was almost all student driven. Like I gave a maybe maybe five minute explanation of what philosophy was, and then each small group discussed this philosophical question in a mini group, and then I pulled them together and did like a fishbowl where everyone like watched the people in the middle. Right? So classic, you know, student engagement teacher thing that you wouldn't call gamification per se. Um but I was like, again, like blown away by the results. Like I'm just reminded of the fact that like when we lecture and we spoon feed these kids, like we can say we've gotten through a chapter or we got farther or we got quicker through that English book because I took them through these notes and I made sure they got all these good parts. But the moment I like turned over the class to them, it's like, oh yeah, this is like infinitely better, 
infinitely oh. better. They were all it, it, smiling. They were all engaged. The low kids, the high kids, the in-between kids, everyone was working towards this point and doing like a, a better version than like I had seen in a while. And it was like, it's because it's that student choice. It's playful. It's, yeah. And these are different kids. And I'm going to like keep ringing that bell because people sometimes say, I wish we had kids like we used to. We used to. We used to. Like, yes, we have different kids. You know what hasn't changed? us like we continue to do the same model and when we do some of these game elements even the little g like you're saying even like you wouldn't call that lesson a gamified lesson but it has the game components that students are used to they had choice they had autonomy to decide especially in this it was a bit of a debate and there was no real right answer it was just kind of how do you feel explain how you feel and they tackled that question for a good 60 minutes <laughs> Like without getting distracted, without being like, I'm done with this and I want to be done. I, I think the biggest metaphor I could kind of push, I guess it's an analogy um, for, for games in 2020 versus games in 2000 is the first time you played apples to apples, right? Remember the first time you played apples to apples with friends? You're like, oh my God, everyone's playing at all times. There's no time on the bench. And this is a messy game with no rules. I kind of hate this a little bit because, uh, how do I win? The answer, you have to learn how to read other players like a poker game, right? And you have to be willing to play the card and play the player and play the room and play, you know, make your case. And how different is that than a game of Clue or a game of Monopoly? I know how much you love Monopoly. Um, where Ooh, it's a lot, of wah, time spent wah, wah. <laughs> a lot of time spent waiting for your turn and setting up the board and then going to grab a, a drink in the other room or some pretzels and come back, oh, is it my turn yet? Like turn or, like, or like bake an entire pizza. Okay. All right. You know, I think we're going to film an April Fool's where that's our challenge for April for you. It's our, we're going to make, we just say nice things about Monopoly for 30 minutes. Oh. Like that. Um, but like, it's, it's a game that moves at a different pace. And I think for a lot of today's uh, more traditional teachers, they have not played those games that are more messy and they don't see classrooms that should be messy because they don't play like that. Right. They don't, they don't see that. Right. And it's like, no, you have to understand that so many games now, like collaborative games like Pandemic or, or Horrified or Ticket to Ride, like everyone's playing at all times, at all times. You're not just waiting for your turn to come up. Um, you know, collaborative social deduction games like, you know, uh, Two Rooms in a Boom or, you know, Secret Hitler, like you're always looking. There's no time to walk away from it. And the right answer, quote unquote, is really determined by what the room determines. That's very different than the teacher as the font of all information that sort of sprays that knowledge on everyone. And then they're supposed to catch as much as they can in the bucket because five days later they have a test. You've switched the entire paradigm. And so we have to play differently in order to learn how to teach differently. Yeah. Uh, and that's so good. That's, that's what it's about, right? And, I mean, not to give everybody a little bit of homework, but I always do, like, challenge you to pick up one of these games. I mean, many of the well-played podcasts have been a series of games. Go back and look through some of those podcasts. Uh, the last two years on my YouTube channel, I've done good games for your classroom and your living room. Check those two videos out. Pick up one of these new board games. I mean, they range anywhere from 10 bucks to 50 bucks, but the amount of play you can get out of them, the amount of research you can kind of get out of them for your classroom is well worth it. And I think if you, if you do that, you'll see that like play is for everyone. Like, 
even you as the adult, even you just about to retire, you're 60 something something, like these games are fun and you'll see the laughter, you'll see the community that's built around a game. And you'll I if you're built like all the teachers I know, you're always on the lookout for how to use something in your classroom and it won't take long before you say like I want this feel in my classroom. And either you'll figure out a way game-based learning to bring that particular game in or gamification those elements that you love from that game. Amen, brother. Amen. Right? Like it's just it's only a matter of time, I swear, but we just got to get you to play, right? And as So what what's one game someone could pick up today? Just like one takeaway for homework cuz my new one is Horrified. It's, it's good like cooperative. That's a good It's a good great it's 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 like Pandemic with Training Wheels. If you want to get into a cooperative game where we're all working together with the familiar universal movie monsters like Dracula and the Wolfman, like it, the theme is great. It's not particularly demanding to learn how to play. You can pick it up in about seven to ten minutes and you play as a team and you have fun as a team. And then you get a feel for what new collaborative board games can be like. That one's my, my, my new recent go to. Uh, oh man, I play so many games. Like you're putting me on the spot and like, I'm like, oh, they should get this one. They should get this one, this one, this one. Uh, I would say for your light homework, I would get tiny towns. I absolutely love tiny okay. towns. Like good, on good one. Uh, you're building this little like city. Everybody has their individual board. Uh, as John's pointing out, like this one's not collaborative, but everybody's in it at all moments. Because what happens is you have these buildings in the center that are like Tetris-shaped requirements. So to build the sawmill, you, you need to make like an L with certain resource types. Like it needs to have like wood, wood, stone, stone in an L shape, okay. and you'll build it. But the where we're all in it together is when it's John's turn, he calls out a resource, and we all have to use that resource somewhere on our board. So a little bit like Tetris, like where do I shove this? Uh, I don't God. need, he called glass. I don't need glass. I'm trying to build a sawmill. Where do I shove glass that will be useful later on? But it is somewhat hogging up my That's board. Cool. It's fun. And then when you build the building, you take all that like L-shaped resources and you have to put the building somewhere where the L existed, freeing up the remaining like three Clear. spaces. So now like... Now, like, what can I fit now in that now cleared up space? Ah, like, ooh, that glass that I put now all of a sudden can make a marketplace. Like, uh, but if you don't play it right and you got to read the other player. Ugh. And then it comes with all these different buildings. So, you, I mean, infinite. But, but how much more are you thinking when you play these sorts of games than when you're just waiting for your turn to roll the dice and just give money to somebody? There's no strategy in that. There's, there's no strategy in it. If you bought your property, it's a death march. That's it. That's it. Um, in a traditional game like Monopoly. This is so much more active and engaged through every minute of the play, right down to the end game, where you're like, oh, wait, we're running out of spaces, we're running out of resources, we're running out of cubes, we're running out of chances. That's... I will I will give one more plug just for a timely fashion here, because this is going to come out this Tuesday. I don't know how many of you have tried ever to do a Kickstarter, but I would highly recommend backing this Kickstarter. I think there's like, by the time this comes out, there'll be like 12 more days to go on it. Uh, it's called On Tour or QE, but if you look that up, these both came out last year. They both instantly sold out. I have played both. I love both. On Tour is a roll and write where like, you can play it with your entire classroom. So pick this game up, literally all like 20 kids. You could play it with your entire school. All 300 kids could play it at the same time. So that's pretty awesome. Buy that game. And QE is just so different than any game you've ever played 
um, you're bidding on these tiles, but QE stands for quantitative easing, which is the government printing more money. That's what that means. That's the fancy term for Oh my gosh. Okay. And so when you're bidding on these tiles, this is going to be hard to wrap your mind around until you play it, but like you have infinite money. So you can bid anything. You write on this placard, like, I'll bid 1.5 million for this tile. Somebody else can say, I'll bid 2 billion for that tile. Only the person that bids the most wins, but only whoever, like, the quote-unquote auctioneer is that round, sees all the bids. So now the auctioneer knows John bid 2 billion. All I know is I lost, and I bid 1.5 million. But, like, at the end of the game, at the end of the game, whoever spent the most automatically loses. Loses. So That's... it's this like weird, I can write any number I want, but like, crap, I keep losing. <laughs> I want to win some of these tiles. All right, I'm going to write a bigger number. But only certain people know certain values. It's phenomenal. I'm, it's... I'm literally, I'm pushing uh, back this project right now while we're talking. Yeah, so you can get both so bundled. Worried. It is so worth it. They're great QE games. and on tour, both of them, yeah. Yep, you can get both of them in this Kickstarter campaign. And I don't usually so in. tell other people to back them because I've never usually played them. But this is like a reprint and you can get both, and they're so good. I'm so in, man. So in. <laughs> it's fabulous. You're gonna love both. I don't even like. I'm not even nervous. Just go out, and get it. I I can't wait. I, this is how much I like it. I own both, and I am backing it again. Backing it yet again. Because I'm like, either I can give this away to friends, or I'll just. This will be my classroom copy that I can get banged up to all heck. But uh, they're just so good. Yes, sir. Done. All right, so we got to wrap this up. I mean, I could talk to you forever. We got to have you on the show again, again, and then start a new show. Well thought. Well thought. Um, <laughs> so our so going on the well thought sort of uh, notion here. Our reflection time quote comes from Carl Jung, uh, and it's his quote is, "I love it. The creation of something new is not accomplished by intellect, but by the play instinct." Ooh, I love that. Creation of something new is not accomplished by the intellect, but by the play instinct. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so I think what it's what is driving for me is it's a question of if you're willing to do the same thing, using a monopoly metaphor, you will go around the board again and again and again, and you will have one of two options: either Michael will win that game or John will win that game, and that was predetermined pretty much once the uh, properties were purchased. But where the fun happens and where the strategy, if there is any, a monopoly happens is the decision to purchase or not purchase a property. That's the new thing that you do. But the new part of that game is over in the first 10 minutes. And I think that that really does, even if you're an old school gamer, traditionally say, if gaming is for everyone, if play is for everyone, like, it's the getting involved with it, it's the trying, it's the hazarding guesses, it's the specula speculation, and it's... It's where it's messy. That's where it's able to take shape. Everything else is just sort of riding out the clock. And I think that that's a really powerful way to look at your classroom. Do you want your kids riding out the clock, or do you want them to be trying things that can change the game? I love it. For me, uh, it's just a good reminder. Again, we, we again, go into that professionalism. We tell ourselves, like, the intellect's going to win out. It's going <clears> to <throat> be how many committees, how many books I can read, how many this, how many that. But truly, that, that new thing, that creation... I do think resides on, on the play side of the ledger because it is when you're sort of clicking some buttons and trying something on that new software that you kind of unlock like, oh, like I could use it that way. Like 
it's it's that moment when you sort of become playful, right? I could sit here and think all day about something, and I'm I'm not going to say that no gains could be had, but like, play is when you open up that unexpected avenue that truly produces, I think, that sense of wonder in the people that experience that new thing with you because no one thought of it that way, you know, and it's this like aha moment, and and that is only unlocked through play. And who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? Right. <laughs> any age, any gamer, that's, that's everybody. You got um, it. It really is. Everything. Yeah. Well, thank you, John, so much for being on this episode, episode 149. Everyone else, thank you for joining each and every week. This is uh, truly an honor to have you guys with us each and every week. Check out YouTube for all sorts of, my YouTube channel for all sorts of other things on there about gamification, playful learning. You can follow my 30-day goals that's been fun this year uh and truly i hope you guys pick up some of these games and just play on